Welcome to the sixth episode of Room 106. I'm Richard Garlick from Planning Magazine. And I'm John Gagan, also from Planning Magazine. Every fortnight we'll be braving Room 106, the chamber of horrors into which all new planning information is dumped, and extricating the key things you need to know. For the benefit of new listeners, the podcast is called Room 106 after Room 101, the chamber in George Orwell's novel 1984 that contains a prisoner's deepest fears. We are suggesting that, for ourselves and some of our audience, the prospect of getting your head round a new policy announcement or court decision can awaken a sense of dread. Although, once you've wrapped a cold towel around your head and dived in, it's not so bad. It's called Room 106 instead of Room 101, in honour of the protracted Section 106 negotiations that can take place when councils are trying to agree how much developers should pay for infrastructure. Not sure what we'll do if the government replaces Section 106, as per its white paper proposals. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. So, coming up, the key news stories and why they might be important for you. We explore the latest results for housing delivery in each English council area, and which councils faced weakened planning powers as a result. The government has fleshed out its proposals to make new development deliver increased biodiversity. We look at the key elements. And ministers continue to drop hints on the future direction of planning policy. We'll report on the latest signals from Westminster and Whitehall. Finally, in the deep dive section, we'll talk to planning reporter Samantha Eckford about her research into gender balance in the planning consultancy sector. Keep listening to hear which consultants have the highest proportion of female planners in their teams and their boardrooms. By the end of the show, you should be more up-to-date than your clients or your chief executive. Unless they're listening in as well. Yes, can't legislate for that. So, time to face the music. Ready to brave Room 106, John? Oh, as I'll ever be. Well, here we are again in Room 106, the catacomb in which all new planning information collects. It's not getting any emptier. There's a select committee report poking out of one of the chambers. Oh, yes, I can hardly move for court judgments and planning applications from Ed Sheeran. At least there aren't many government decisions on major infrastructure projects. Yes, that's good for us, if not for the country. So, what's the really important news to take away from the past fortnight? Well, the biggest story from the past fortnight is the government's publication of the housing delivery test results. Okay. Tell us about that. I know it's something that we always get a lot of interest from from um, from readers. But just can you just go into the background a bit? What's the purpose of the test? So it's an annual test, and it was introduced in 2018, and um, it applies penalties to all English local planning authorities that, in the three years up to the preceding April, failed to meet 95% of their housing requirement in terms of the number of homes delivered in their area. So the aim is to encourage councils to boost housing delivery in their localities. OK, so they're kind of responsible for the level of, of housing delivery in their areas, although, of course, we, we know that many councils argue that it's a bit unfair to do this to them because um, they feel that the level of housing delivery within their areas is, to say the least, not entirely within their own control. It's partly to do with house builders, etc., etc. But what sanctions do uh, do councils face if they perform poorly on this test? So for councils where the delivery rate is less than 75% of their housing requirement, they're subject to the test's toughest penalty, which is the National Planning Policy Framework's presumption in favour of sustainable development. 
And this means their housing supply policies are rendered out of date, which makes them more vulnerable to speculative applications and appeals from developers. So for authorities where the delivery rate is less than 85% of their housing requirement, they have a 20% buffer added to their five-year housing land supply target instead of the usual 5%. So this increases their housing land supply target. And for the authorities where the delivery rate is less than 95%, they're required to publish a housing delivery action plan, which is meant to demonstrate how their housing provision will be increased. Okay, so how many are going to face each of those penalties? For a start, how many of them are going to be facing the presumption in favour and uh, and become more vulnerable to speculative applications? So according to this year's results, 51 councils scored under 75% and will be subject to the presumption in favour of sustainable development. 70 scored under 85% and will have a 20% housing land supply buffer. And a total of 93 scored under 95% and will have to produce a a delivery action plan. But I guess one sort of critical factor to consider is that some of these authorities who face these sanctions next year were already in that position before this set of results. Is, Is that right? Yes, that's right. So how many of these authorities who face the presumption in favour and, in theory, are more vulnerable to speculative development, for how many of them does this result put them in a sort of newly vulnerable position? So of the 51 councils that achieved less than 75% of the test, 39 were also subject to it last year, having um, also scored under 75% then. So it's not a new penalty for them, but it's still very significant that they're going to be subject to it for another year. So of the 12 councils that are having it for the first time uh, as a result of the housing delivery test, we know that nine of them would would be subject to it anyway because their housing land supply position is under five years. So only three of those 12 are actually facing it for the um, first time that that would not be subject to it otherwise. Okay, so so when we see this figure of 51, we need to understand that not for not for all of these 51 is this a, is this a new thing but for some of them it, it's either a new thing or if it wasn't for the test they wouldn't be facing it in coming months that's right in terms of how many of them are going to have a 20% buffer added uh, how many of these are moving from a 5% to a 20% buffer so of the 70 that are subject to that penalty 60 of them already have already had a 20% buffer following last year's test results so just 10 of them are seeing their housing land supply buffer increase from 5 to 20%, which means they're likely to have to find more sites to meet their increased target. Okay, so significantly interesting for, for people who are interested in, in, in those areas. And am I right in thinking people can find out w- what areas we're talking about in um, on our website? That's right, yeah. What about, presumably, there are some councils who are going in the other direction, who used to have to provide a 20% buffer as a result of the test, but because they've done well this year, uh, uh, will now go back to only having to provide the standard 5%. Yes, so there's 13 that have seen their housing land supply buffer reduced from 20 to 5% because they've scored higher in this year's test than last year. Okay. And what about the action plan, the, 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 the plan which where a council has to sort of set out exactly what it's going to do to increase the rate of housing delivery in, in, in its area? How many more councils are going to have to do that as a result of this? So a total of 93 have scored under 95%, so they'll have to produce an action plan. 
this year. Overall, it sounds like the test increases the pressure on a significant number of councils to help boost housing delivery in their areas. Would you say that's correct? Well, there's no doubt that some of the councils that are newly subject to some of the delivery test penalties are going to find it tough if they're, for example, facing the presumption penalty for the first time. So Canterbury Council in Kent has already, which is one of the three we think of facing it for the first time, they've already complained to the government about the situation they're in and they've asked the government to lift the sanction. I'm not sure there's any evidence yet showing whether the test is actually boosting housing delivery rates in the areas that have been penalised in the last few years. But certainly developers are sceptical about whether the the test is really um, has any bites. And there was some research last year by um, planning consultancy Litchfields, which, similar to our findings today, found that a lot of the councils that were subject to the presumption penalty in last year's test would have been subject to it anyway because they didn't have the five-year housing land supply. One other thing to bear in mind that this year's results has been adjusted by the government, so they've softened the um, the assessment criteria because of the impact of COVID um, on housing delivery rates. They have removed four months from each council's housing requirement figure for 2021. Okay, so the amount of housing delivery needed this year for a, for a council to escape sanction is probably lower than it's been in some other years. Nonetheless, I guess the, the, the fact that councils like Canterbury are fighting uh, their designation, some might say gives the lie to the suggestion from some developers that the test is completely toothless. Yeah, yes, that's right. It's going to be difficult for some councils. Good. OK, so the housing delivery test has um, occupied a lot of readers' attention over the uh, over the last couple of weeks. But what else has been important? So another big announcement from the government, perhaps even more significant, is the consultation on its biodiversity net gain measures. So this policy of biodiversity net gain was introduced in the Environment Act, which was passed last November, and it's set to come into force at the end of 2023. So once it comes into force, developers will have to show how they plan to achieve at least 10% increase in biodiversity in order to obtain planning permission for their projects. Okay, and um, so what's the, so we knew that. The Environment Act had come out at the end of last year with that 10% clause. But what's the purpose of the new consultation? What does it add to what was in the Act? So the new consultation is um, setting out further details on the policy. And in particular, for the um, it sets out details on the scope of the, of the new regulations that would be required to implement biodiversity net gain. And it gives us further information on how it's going to work for um, developments approved under the normal town and country planning system and also for major infrastructure projects. OK, so there's, I know there's a lot of detail in there and, um, and, and listeners can find a summary of 20 things they might need to know about it on, on the site. Can you highlight a few of the key aspects? Yes, there was there was a lot in the consultation, as you say, um, and there were some new, some important new details that were um, laid out by the government. Some of the important new details concern exemptions for certain types of developments from the um, requirements, and one of the key changes from previous proposals is that the government is now saying that. Um, Developments on brownfield lands in conservation areas and in national parks would no longer be exempt 
from um, the requirement to provide a net gain improvement. And these are these are this have been suggested in previous consultations. But at the same time, new exemptions are being considered for some kinds of developments, including self and custom build housing. Another new detail is the government is saying it wants net gains to be delivered quickly. So they're saying that within 12 months of the development being commenced, um, on-site biodiversity gains should be secured. And this is something that's got some developers and planning consultants a bit concerned. Okay, and it, it sounds, so it sounds generally as if it is, this is something that people are going to need to read carefully because there's a there's a set of sites that thought previously that maybe that, or, or might have thought previously that they're not going to have to worry about these biodiversity net gain clauses, and but the government is now saying they're going to be relevant to them. There are some other people who might be exempt who didn't realise that they were going to be, and there are some um, there's some more detail about what you need to do to comply. Yes, that's right. Fantastic. Okay. And um, when does the consultation end? It ends on the 5th of April. Good stuff. Okay. So people have got a bit of time to respond to that. Okay. Finally, there have been, there's been a kind of range of stories, hasn't there, over the last couple of weeks that have sort of given a bit more details here and there about what the government might be thinking about forthcoming planning policy changes. Yes, that's right. There've been, obviously, we're waiting for... Um, People in the sector have been waiting a long time for the government's next steps on its uh, planning white paper proposals. Um, and the government's sort of gradually, since Michael Gove arrived as the new housing secretary, the government's sort of been gradually giving clues here and there about what its, uh, what its thinking is. One of the more controversial proposals in the planning white paper was around limiting the ability of people to object to individual planning applications in certain areas. And you may remember this was something that got a lot of Tory backbenchers, including Theresa May, the former Prime Minister, um, quite upset about. And the House of Lords recently, um, the House of Lords Built Environment Committee recently, um, in its inquiry into meeting housing demand, it received a response from the Housing and Living Up Department, um, which added some um, clarity on the government's position on this. So the response said that um, even in those areas that the planning white paper was saying that um, the ability to object would be limited, it's saying that all the details of individual planning applications would be consulted on before approval by either planning officers or planning committees. Okay, so the 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 the, the prospect of councillors being removed from planning decision making in some areas. There's kind of official confirmation that that's um, uh, that that prospect is is now receding. Yes, that's right. It's certainly um, some of the campaigners who are very opposed to this measure in the in the white paper have have welcomed this. So, like the campaign to protect rural England, their head of planning, Paul Miner, told us that um, this does in his in his view this clarifies things quite significantly. And um, they seem to think that it's the government saying that this isn't going to happen now. Right. OK. Well, that's interesting. Um, there's also the government's also reiterated its intention to capture more of the profits made by developers to pay for infrastructure. So briefly, what's it said about this? So another of the key proposals in the planning white paper was um, a, a major shake up of the developer contribution system, which would involve introducing what the government called an infrastructure levy 
to replace the current system of Section 106 agreements and the community infrastructure levy. And the since Michael Gove became the new housing secretary, there'd been little news on the government's thinking about that. And certainly there'd been speculation before his arrival that the government was going to might even shelve this particular proposal because it would be very, a lot of people in the sector, sector felt it would be very complicated to uh, implement. But early this month, we had um, two ministers, the housing minister, Christopher Pincher, and a junior housing minister, Eddie Hughes, both reiterated the government's commitment to um, introduce an infrastructure levy and one that would allow councils to capture greater land value. Okay. So they, 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 they really seem to be making big promises about essentially getting more of the profit that is made by development contributed towards the infrastructure that's needed to support development. Yes, that's right. And that does actually echo some of the comments by Michael Gove in the autumn, although he didn't talk about the um, specifically about the new infrastructure levy. He did say he was determined to reform the developer contribution system. And one of the things he was looking at was um, allowing more of the land value to be extracted more efficiently from developers, is how he put it. Okay, and then um, the government has also finally, I think after quite a long time, uh, responded to the findings of the Glover Review of National Parks and AONBs. Very briefly, what what, what are the most um, notable headlines in the responses? So the government commissioned a report on this a few years ago, and the report on the role of national parks and areas of outstanding natural beauty was actually published in September 2019, so more than two years ago, um, and they finally responded to that. One of the things that they're proposing is a stronger planning role for the bodies that oversee areas of outstanding natural beauty. And they're suggesting that they, which is one of the recommendations in the report, was that these bodies should be granted statutory consultee status. So one other thing the government said it's doing is it's going to test the idea to rename areas of outstanding natural beauty as national landscapes. Okay, John. So, anything else? Um, anything else notable in there? Those are the key things for me. Fantastic. Many thanks for that, John. Uh, and of course, more details of all of these stories can be found on planningresource.co.uk. But, John, I'm afraid I'm going to have to leave you in this maelstrom of planning information because now it's time for this week's deep dive. For the last few years, planning has produced annual reports examining female representation in the consultancy sector, both at director level and more generally. Doing this involves a member of the team poring over the returns made to our annual planning consultancy market report. These returns are pretty detailed, a contribution to the Room 106 information mountain for which we have to take responsibility ourselves. And now I need to find our reporter, Samantha Eckford who's been poring over them. Shouldn't be too hard to spot her, even in this gloom, as it is a particularly large mound of information. Ah, there she is. Hello, Sam. Hello, Richard. So, Sam, your article on this research was published on Friday, and people can find it on planningresource.co.uk. But can you give us a bit of an overview? Yes. So, like you mentioned, we look at the data that we gather in our annual consultancy survey. And we use that to look at female representation within the consultancy sector. 
we use a threshold of inclusion of 16 chartered town planners for most of the data that we publish. Okay. And um, what are the kind of headline conclusions about the proportion of planners in the consultancy sector that are female? So within the consultancy sector this year, 39.9% of chartered planners at these consultancy firms are female. This is marginally higher than the 39.6% that was reported last year and an increase on the 37.5% reported in 2019. It's pretty much in line with what we see across the planning sector as a whole. According to the RTPI, 40.65% of its chartered members are female. Okay, so very similar to the, the sector as a whole and a fractional increase year on year. What about directors? What's the situation there, directors and consultancies? So we saw a larger increase um, in terms of female planning directors. This year, 22.1% of planning directors at these firms were female. Now, in both 2019 and 2020, our survey found that 20% of planning directors were female. So this is a slightly larger increase in this area. Okay, interesting. Maybe we can talk about some of the reasons that might be behind that later on. But you've been looking at which firms have got the highest proportion of, of female uh, chartered town planners and at the firms where the proportion of female chartered town planners is growing fastest. Who is it that, that stands out as far as that's concerned? So Jacobs was the firm that saw the largest year-on-year increase in female chartered town planners. The firm reported an 11.4 percentage point rise. DLP planning had the second largest increase in the proportion of female planners it reported, with a 10.7 percentage point increase. The firm also reported the largest proportion of female planners overall, with 57.6% of its planning staff reported as female. Emory Planning, LUC, CBRE, Atkins and Arup also reported that 50% or more of their planning staff are female. And are there any sort of particular policies or approaches that seem to characterise the firms that have high proportions of, of female chartered town planners? Yeah, so unsurprisingly, firms raise the importance of a flexible working environment again and again. It's worth mentioning that many of the people I spoke to noted that the pandemics helped to accelerate the impact of flexible working. Alongside flexible working, firms reported a range of DEI initiatives designed to help attract the best female talent and also to help women already within the workplace. This included the provision of good maternity packages, as well as more unusual approaches, including menopause education sessions and mentoring programmes. Okay, those are the firms with the sort of overall highest proportion of women planners in their teams. But what about the firms who've got the highest proportion of female planners at director level? So some of the firms are the same. So LUC had a high level of female representation across the board and also the highest level of female representation at director level, having reported that 62.5% of planning directors are female. The firm was closely followed by Atkins, where 60% of planning directors are female, and David Locke Associates, where exactly half of planners at this seniority level are female. David Locke also saw the largest percentage point increase in the number of planning directors that are female with the figure having risen by 25% year on year. DHA planning saw the second largest increase at the seniority level, as the proportion of female planning directors at the firm increased by 23.1 percentage points. Again, are there any particular policies that seem to be common at these firms which have contributed to a higher than average representation of women at board level? 
So while some of the firms did say that the increase in female representation at director level was more a case of timing than any specific initiative, there's no doubt that flexible working has also helped these firms to achieve high levels of female representation. Firms also noted that tokenism and quick fixes must be avoided at all costs. In order to really increase female representation at director level, there must be a dedicated effort involving both men and women over a sustained period of time in order to make any real difference. Firms cited a range of mentoring schemes that helped female planners to progress within businesses and also noted that visibility was important. According to many of the people I spoke with, seeing women in leadership roles may help to give younger female planners role models and help them to progress to more senior positions in the future. Fantastic, Sam. Thanks very much for that. See you back in the office, uh, I hope, assuming we both get out of here uh, unscathed. Fingers crossed. Right. Now to find John again, so he can select his reader's choice, the apparently inconsequential but widely read article from the last couple of weeks. Ah, there he is. Hello, John. Hello, Richard. So, what have the readers settled on this uh, in this last fortnight as their, uh, their favourite inconsequential story? So, one of the quirky stories that our readers have um, shown interest in, and um, you referred to him earlier, um, Ed Sheeran, is um has revealed his latest plans for his um his Suffolk estate um according to the times it's a bit of a morbid application but according to the times he submitted an application for a burial chamber under the floor of a church or a planned church on the grounds of his estate apparently he's already been granted permission for the church building but now wants to enhance it with a space that could be used to lay bodies to rest interesting well it's a, it's the sort of thing you whenever you go to a national trust property you sort of find mausoleums you you sort of think that maybe they've they've that people aren't quite so interested in um, the sort of the, the wealthy property builders aren't, aren't quite as interested as that as maybe they were two centuries ago but perhaps Ed Sheeran is is restarting a trend yes that's right maybe he's ahead of the curve on that um, as you know, Ed Sheeran often features in our uh, newspaper coverage of planning news. Um, he's had a lot of dealings with the planning system over the last few years, including facing enforcement action and upsetting his neighbours. Uh, well, you, you, uh, well, building something underground. I, I know people come uh, come and come into difficulties with that when they're trying to extend basements in Kensington, but uh, maybe out in Suffolk, he'll he'll find that a bit easier than some of the other things he's brought forward. Yes, I'm sure he's hoping this one doesn't upset his neighbours. OK, thanks very much, John. Well, I think our work is done. Let's get out before there are any more announcements or decisions. Great, that's another fortnight summarised. Yes, we'll be back in two weeks to give you another update on the key things happening in the sector. Our thanks to our producers from Rethink Audio. And in the meantime... Don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts. And to get a daily bulletin of planning news, plus weekly analysis, specialist bulletins and our quarterly print magazine, subscribe at planningresource.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Bye.